A true gift of like a pastor is we can say we have nothing to say and we can, we, get, we can still be saying it, you know, and like talking and stuff. That's like something that we're good at. Um, it's a gift. It really is. Um, yeah, it's good to see you guys here. We, um, yeah, like Matt said, it's, you know, it's crazy. Like uh, we have people homeschooling. I've talked to um, a, a lot of teachers this last week who are um, teaching like, you know, in uh, like they're teaching from their homes, like at their regular teaching jobs over distance learning while also having kids at home that they are trying to help educate as well. And, um, and even just teachers who don't have any kids at home but are still trying to take what they do in person and do it over the internet. Like, it is really, really difficult to do. And so I think that this is a time when like everything seems to be taking so much more effort, you know? But, um, but I think that persevering through it and like, you know, you have bright moments like this where we get to come together again and we get to see each other again and we haven't been able to do this in a while. So yeah, it's really exciting to see you guys here. Um, and, uh, and then also I guess there's something like the last count was like 45,000 people that are on the live stream tuning in. Um, <laughs> those are the numbers our youth pastor gives me. He's really good with numbers. He's, he's, um, Steve said 22. Steve just did like 22. Don't tell me that, Steve. Um, um, yeah, put your youth pastor in charge of your numbers. Um, so we've been in this series um, on love, on 1 Corinthians 13. And last week we talked about um, the fact that, uh, last week we covered all of the positive aspects of love, as in, here is what love is. We're now moving on to the rest of the passage, which is, here's what it isn't. Uh, love is so simple to understand in terms of it's not that complicated to try to be loving towards one another. It's not like it doesn't take a PhD to figure out what it means to love somebody. Um, Paul covers it in two words, patience and kindness. Um, uh, but some reason, for some reason, even though it's like that simple, to wrap our minds around, we live in a world where we would say we don't see it nearly as much as we should, and we definitely don't experience being around people who seem to be really genuinely uh, loving each other. That's a rare thing. That's an exception to the rule. So why is it that this thing that seems so simple is so rare? What we said last week was uh, because love um, is sort of like a road that you get on and find out shortly thereafter that this road is not a direct, uh, is not the shortest distance between two points. It actually seems like the longest distance between two points. It's like a windy, long road that takes forever to get somewhere and makes you want to get off of it a lot to say there's got to be a better, quicker way to do this, to live this life with people, right? But in the same way that you want to hop off the road, because the challenge isn't understanding love, it's persevering through love. It's saying, I'm going to choose to be this way with people, the people in my family, the person I'm married to, the people in the church, the people in my community. I'm going to choose to be this way towards these people and constantly fight this temptation to say, this road is too difficult. I'm getting off of this thing. That's why we don't experience it very much, because of how, how windy and tough that road is. Uh, this week, we kind of start talking about, like I said, the negatives. And, and where Paul starts this is he starts very simply by talking about um, 
about envying and about boasting. So this last week I got a text message from Ellie and it had a picture in it and it was a picture of this. And you can't see that well from back there, but this is a grave site, sadly. And it says, here lies froggies. And um, we used to have four frogs. Um, I'm sorry for those family friends who were finding out this way, but our four frogs have died. Um, and um, if you, um, it's a miracle that they live this long. It really is um, because our kids like bringing in an animal is basically like putting the animal on death row. You just don't know how long it's going to be, you know, there, but you know where it's going to end up in the end. And they definitely love, they love things to death. We'll, we'll say that, you know, they, they just love them to death, like by poking them basically. And all four frogs died on the same day, and they buried them, and it was very sad. We got these frogs from the uh, trout farm, because like I said last week, um, my kids don't like fishing. And so we went to the trout farm, and after about two seconds, they were like, this is boring. There's no fish here. I'm like, there are fish here. You know, you can see the fish here. They're jumping out, you know, at people. Um, like, you can hold a Cheeto out for one of those guys, and they'll come get it right away. Um, but they get bored, and, and they, saw, they saw at the trout farm these, uh, these tadpoles that were like the size of a baseball, it looked like, in the water, these huge tadpoles. And then instantly, that's all they cared about, was the tadpoles. Which is good, because the owner of the trout farm said, please take all the tadpoles you want for free. We don't want them. My kids are like, what are you crazy? They're just giving these things away. So they, we, I, caught four tadpoles because they can't catch stuff. Like I said, if you're an animal living in the wild and my kids start hunting you, you're safe for the rest of your life. Um, I caught four tadpoles. We took them home, and believe it or not, they grew into frogs. And uh, the reason that they were giving these things away is because apparently they, don't, they have too many tadpoles. And my kids didn't understand this. They didn't understand that, like, you know, they didn't bring in these frogs and go, let's have some frogs in here and then it kind of got out of, got out of control. Uh, this is what we would call an invasive species, right? This is something that like, it gets in, it starts out, and then all of a sudden it's out of control, and you're like, we want these things gone because these tadpoles and these frogs eat all the fish food and stuff like that, and it's not a good situation. There's like so many of them at this pond. Uh, th this idea of like an invasive species, this is something that we're pretty familiar with. Uh, we've got some here in Oregon. Uh, I'm not allowed to give tours of uh, Oregon City anymore to prospective uh, staff members because I, I was in charge of like Megan and Justin kind of getting, uh, seeing what Oregon City was like, you know, and like when Larry Brakefield and Sue Free took me on a tour of Oregon City, it was like elevator and like the bridge and, you know, like, like they talked a lot about the girls basketball team being on the Cheerios box for some reason. That was a really big deal. So I know all about that. But... When I gave a tour to Megan and Justin, it was like, you guys got to see this thing called a nutria. They're like, they're up here. They're crazy. It's like straight out of the Princess Bride. It's incredible. And we tried really hard to find them. And we, I don't think we found any when they were visiting, which is probably why they came. But, and if you think like, oh, that sounds kind of cute, right? Like kind of like a little beaver thing. Like that's cute, right? No, this is like what they look like. They get close enough to you. And then the teeth come out, and you're like, ugh, you know, this is what they look like. These things, believe it or not, they're not from here. They're from South America. People brought them here in like the 1800s for the fur trade. And, and shocking, shockingly, uh, in the 1930s, the Nutria fur market collapsed, right? The women were not buying 
nutria fur coats anymore. And so uh, they've, just, they've just grown and grown a number, and uh, they've become an invasive species, and they are like a really big problem. Now, I was reading about this this week, what makes something an invasive species, and um, it basically, there are three things that it has to be able to do. The first is it has to be able to kind of live um, in any environment. Not really any environment, but it has to be able to live, uh, it kind of like be able to make it in a lot of different places. Um, they have to be able to adapt to a new area easily. And Nutria just need a little bit of water. And guess what, guys? Bad news. We've got that here. Um, they have to be able to reproduce quickly. Uh, frogs, tadpoles, nutria, they do that, we know that. And, uh, and they have to, um, they have to like ha actually harm the environment that they're in. That's what makes them invasive, right? Um, they have to be able to, like an invasive species is one that like, while it grows and reproduces, so these nutrias, they eat all this vegetation and everything, and it's what holds together the soil around these bodies of water, and as they eat more and more of it, then the soil erodes away, and somehow that leads to like, you know, I don't know, like we're going to split in half or something, like the earth is going to open up at some point. I don't know, something about that. But it's bad, right? So in the very same way that these invasive species, they kind of, they come in and, and it seems innocuous, it seems not that big of a deal at first, but when unchecked, when left, they grow and they become very destructive. This is the thing that I've been thinking about this week as, we've been, as I've been thinking about this first thing that Paul says to the people about what love is not, because now he moves on to, here's what you have to avoid doing, and it is simply to envy and to boast. Now, the thing about envy is that we've all experienced it, um, but envy is this all-consuming thing. Uh, we talk about the green-eyed monster, right, of envy, this thing that can grow from within you and almost sort of consume you. This is exactly what it does. Like these invasive species, it comes in just a little bit, and you don't think it's that big of a deal at first. In fact, you think it's pretty normal to let a little bit in, to entertain the thought at first, and then it grows and it feeds on itself, right? Um, and so envy it turns out, can uh, live in almost any environment. In, in any person, envy can, can, can arise. In fact, the crazy thing about envy is that, uh, I was talking to someone after the first service about this, those that we often struggle to envy the most are the people closest to us. We uh, are envious of our, uh, of our own brothers and sisters, envious of the people in our own families, envious of some of our best friends, partly because having someone that close to you in life with something that you want is like a constant reminder of the fact that you don't have that thing. Sometimes that we envy the people in our immediate family that we grew up with because it's like we all kind of came from the same place and look what you have versus look what I have. Look what you've done versus look what I've done. Envy can exist anywhere. And it also seems to reproduce pretty quickly uh, on its own. You go from, it, it grows and it begins to consume things and it causes destruction. In fact, um, you go from, I want what you have, that's how we think of envy, to, um, I don't want you to have that anymore. I, I can't get it, but I sure would like it if you didn't have it. Um, to, I'm not happy with what I have now, regardless of what you have, right? Like it grows and it does all these weird things within us and it causes all this damage that we don't expect. And you may not think that 
you're guilty of this. You may not think of yourself as a really envious person, yet if you actually think about what goes on in your own heart, a lot of the time you might realize, you know, I do find this strange sense of satisfaction from bad things happening to people, which is because uh, it makes me feel better to know that those who maybe have things I don't, who have life circumstances that I don't, they're going to get theirs in the end, right? We, we, we like thinking in terms of like, well, they'll see one day, right? Well, in the end, you know, we'll see how that goes for them. And, well, yeah, but time will tell, right? Um, and, uh, well, well, they may have that now, but we'll see what happens later. It actually makes you feel good when other people experience misfortune or when they suffer because while you may not be able to get that thing that you want, at least they don't have it anymore. But the other thing this invasive species does is it, it hurts, it harms, it causes destruction. And here's the weird thing about envy is don't we all want people to envy us? I mean, we, we kind of want people to want the lives that we have. I mean, we're not obsessed with it. We don't get up every day and look in the mirror and go, all right, today I'm going to live a life that people are going to kill for, right? No, that's not how we think of it. But at the same time, is that not a great compliment? Isn't that flattering to know that people would look at things that you have or the circumstances of your life or something about you and they would go, I want that thing? Why would I not want people to envy me? Why would, why would that not be a good thing? Aren't I giving you what you want? By desiring what you have, isn't that ultimately a good thing? Well, it seems that somehow it's a bad thing. Somehow it causes something bad. And we see that all the way back in the beginning of Scripture in Genesis, where we begin to see the seeds of this thing kind of get planted and grown. If you know the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers of Adam and Eve, and uh, Cain is uh, one who works in the fields uh, growing crops, and Abel is a shepherd. He has, he has livestock and sheep. And they bring offerings to God, and it says that Abel brings God his, his best sheep, and uh, Cain brings God a wheat offering. Now, when I was a kid and I first heard this story, the way it was sort of presented to me was, I mean, come on, kids, if you were God, what would you want more, right? Nice piece of meat or some wheat, right? What are you going to do with wheat, right? And I thought, oh, yeah, he should have given God more. Actually, that's not the point. That's not what happens, because it was a first fruits offering. And so really, to give wheat from a guy who grows wheat is perfectly fine. And yet there's something, if you know the story, about Cain's offering that is displeasing to God. God isn't happy with what he gives him. And what's interesting is that God doesn't tell him why. The story doesn't tell us why God isn't happy with it either. It doesn't say it wasn't a good enough offering. Well, what happens is Cain, it says, is, is angry, is kind of bitter in his heart towards the Lord because God said, I'm happy with Abel's offering, but not with yours, Cain. And then when Cain kind of is grumpy and he's grumbling, here's what God says to him in response. Here's how God explains the situation to him. He says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So again, God isn't saying to him, here's why I'm not happy. But what he is talking about is his heart, which makes us think maybe it's quite likely that uh, Cain gave God the first fruits of his wheat as he was supposed to, but there was something about his heart, something going on within him 
that uh, wasn't satisfying to God, that God cares about the heart of this man. All we know is that God is warning him and saying, listen, Cain, it's this simple. Do good, and I'm pleased. Let sin in and let it grow, and I will be displeased no matter what offering it is that you give me, if it exists there. So then Cain goes and does clearly the most productive thing that you can do in this situation. He kills his brother Abel. He gets angry, and he kills him. Now, this is a pointless act. This is totally self-destructive. This is bad. This isn't the story where, like, he steals something from him or he tries to get something else and mask it as something else. No, he just, he kills his brother in anger. He, he does something that doesn't help anyone or anything in this situation, and he takes his anger out on a person who didn't do anything wrong, the guy who did something right. What on earth is going on? What's happening is, is here, early on in the history of sin with people, we see how evil and, and deceptive it is. Because what we see is we see how the tendency of the sinful heart is to say, it's not what's going on in me that I need to focus on. When, when I'm angry, when I'm hurt, when I'm upset, when the, when, the, when the effects and the damage of my sin come back and hurt me in my life, I just lash out at someone else. I pick a person. Or I, to him, Abel was the reminder. It was the, he was the reminder of all the things that Cain wanted and he couldn't have. And so envy, as good as it might seem to want what your brother has, to maybe be happy for your brother that God liked him, it doesn't seem to lead to that, does it? Envy doesn't lead to uh, Cain loving his brother more and saying, Abel, could you take me under your wing and show me how to offer better sacrifices to God? Well, sure, brother, come right in. No, it leads to strife. This is what we see, and this is what Paul's talking about. Envy breeds strife. Paul is using a word here that he refers back, he's referring back to in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's talking to them about what's going on in their church, and he says, he says, I wish, you, he says, you guys want me to approach you as adults? I can't. You're children. You want me to feed you solid food? I can't. You still need milk because you're living so badly with one another. And he says, because you are filled with um, jealous, jealousy and strife. And th that same jealousy and strife is translated here as envy. What he's saying is he's saying, there's something going on in your community that you want things that others have. You look at them and you say, I desire that thing they have, and I'm unhappy with what I have. And in that church at the time, it wasn't even you had a nicer car, you had a nicer house or a nicer pool. It was um, you, it was actually just that people even had like positions within the church. They had a voice within the church that other people wanted. So they were jealous of it. See, envy is, is not just about wanting material things that other people have. In fact, many of us who've struggled with this in the biggest ways in our lives, we would say it isn't because someone has a nicer car. It's not because they have a nicer house. It's because when the circumstances of my life have gotten so hard, I can look at so many others and say, why on earth don't they have to go through anything like this? Why, why do I lose but they don't? Uh, what, what, what is it that's different between us? Why, uh, why are things the way they are for me now? Why does my family uh, look the way it does or not look the way that I want it to when others seem to be able to uh, have whatever it is they want there, right? 
It's oftentimes, uh, I've even known of people who have struggled with envy towards their own spouse, towards, uh, like I said, siblings, people so close to us in our lives that you would think, well, don't these people share the same benefits, right? Kind of like how God's children, we share in the same, like, inheritance that we have in God, and yet you would think that makes us all feel okay with each other. We're not, because we just see things that other people have, and we say, that's what I want. It's crazy how much we structure the things we want in life around the other people around us. Like, um, like I mean, if you're around enough people, and everyone has four kids, and you've got three kids, it's amazing how quickly you'll be like, I just feel like, you know, that fourth is, is what, like I've talked with people who have struggled with this in communities, and yet you talk to people who have uh, two kids, and it's like, I've only got one kid, and I just feel like having two, you know? It's like, this is a thing that we do, right? Right, everybody's got a Subaru, and I just have like a Toyota. Like, I just, I just feel like until I can get a Subaru, right, it's not really gonna be enough. I'm gonna get stuck out there one day. I just know it's gonna happen right? Uh, this is a big problem when you have community, when you have people living together. And what it leads to is strife. It leads to people being enemies of each other. It leads to people having malice towards each other. And Paul points that out here. So because this desire this monster that can grow within us and consume us can be such a destructive thing. The, the, I, I think the question is, how do you not uh, be envious of those around you, those in community with you? I think Paul tells us the answer to this in Philippians, but he, well, he alludes to what it is. He doesn't actually tell us how to, how to get it. It's, it's a, kind of a misunderstood part of the Bible in how we interpret it. He talks about this idea of contentment right? Uh, the goal for me as a, as, a, as a Christian, the goal for me as a part of community is to learn to be content regardless of what I have or what you have. If I can be content, then it doesn't matter what the people around me have and how they live. I can, I can, be, I can be happy for you even if you have something that I don't have. But when Paul explains this, we, we kind of treat this passage in Philippians like he's explaining how to get contentment. He isn't. He's talking about how great it is, and then we don't see how he gets it. Look, you see it here in Philippians 4. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I'm like, what is it? What is the secret? Tell me the secret. We want this secret. And he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He doesn't tell us the secret. That isn't him saying, this is how you do it. He's saying to us, Contentment is good. True contentment, by the way, is not just being happy with very little. No, no, no. In fact, that's almost like the easier version of contentment. Most people I know who struggle to be content are people with much. Because he says real contentment, 
real like varsity level contentment is I'm okay with a little and I can have much and not be owned by those things, not be obsessed with those things, not constantly uh, depend on those things for my life. I can not, not be so afraid of, of like losing them and going back to where I had to be content with very little because really I wasn't or something. And what he tells us, he says, I found the secret of contentment. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. God is enough for us. Christ is enough for us. And he has given me the strength to be content regardless of my circumstances. So what that means is this. There isn't an easy, quick, fix answer to contentment other than to know that it is possible for each and every one of us, regardless of our circumstances then it is possible for you to be truly content. And that if you can learn contentment, then you will be more and more freed from this this invasive monster that can kind of come and creep into your life and then completely take over and ruin the way that you are with other people. But he goes on and he says something else. He says not only to not envy, but he says, to not boast. You see, what Paul does here is he goes on to say, well, hang on a second, there's two sides to something like this. In fact, there's two sides to most things that we struggle with. Because there's also the things that you do that make other people envy. And we talked about this last week, the fact that it's actually very simple when you talk about kindness to work to be more kind. All you have to do is take more responsibility than you were probably taking before, is to say, instead of saying, how could I know you would feel that way when I said that thing? How could I? It's not my fault that, that you're acting like this. It's not my fault that your life is like this. It's not my fault that you can't be happy that I have these things and you don't. That's not my fault, right? That, that to be kind and to be patient means taking more responsibility for the things that we are doing that actually can even tempt our own brothers and sisters. Now, don't get me wrong. This is like one of the most unpolitically correct things that you could preach because if you were to go into any uh, decent counselor or therapist's office and say, I just feel so responsible for all the bad things the people around me are doing, if they're at all a good counselor or therapist, they would go, you shouldn't feel responsible for all the bad things that the people around you are doing. It's not on you, it's on them. And to a certain degree, obviously, that's important for us to understand to be healthy people and not be you know, manipulated and feeling guilty for everything everyone else does. But, uh, in fact, we very much value this idea of like, of like, I have no connection to the things that you do, and so much so that I need to get away from anybody or anything that I think is like gonna be holding me back or keeping me down or making me look upon things in a way that I don't wanna have to, right? That's not the Christian version of love. The Christian version of love says, I do what I can to help you keep from struggling. And you go, well, why is that on us? Why is that on me? That's on you, you're the one. Well, unfortunately, because of that thing that Jesus did, where uh, he had no reason whatsoever, no obligation to have to come and to give his life for us, but he did. And our life is found in that sacrifice. And so because of that, that means that we live in the power of something that's been done for us, not because we did anything to deserve it, not because Jesus had any part in our guilt. 
he sacrificed for us, which means that we are living sort of on the foundation of, we're breathing the very oxygen of someone sacrificing themselves so that we could have life. And so when we try to love each other, what we say is, yes, envy is bad, it's toxic, it's not good. And so rather than just say, hey, I'm not going to, I'm going to try to not be envious. That's what I'm going to try to do. I also say, I'm going to try to not boast. I'm going to try to not be a person. And when you translate this literally, it's a person who's basically always going around proclaiming the same message over and over again, how great they are, how great their life is, how great their circumstances are. This is a person who is merely proud of what they've done, of the life that they have. And what Paul's saying is to really love your brother is not just to say, I'm going to try not to be envious of what they have. He's going to say to really love your brother is to say, I am going to not boast about the things that I have. Now, this is a really hard thing for us to wrap our mind around because we live in the age. Well, the, the question is basically this, right? Like, is it wrong to be proud Right? Is it wrong to say, I'm proud of this thing that, uh, that I've accomplished. I'm proud of this person in my family. I'm proud of my family. I'm proud of, of these things that we've worked hard for. I'm proud of my church. And, and, and you know, it's, it's the, you know, when Jesus says, well, when you serve, right, let your, uh, do so in a way that doesn't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, right? We're like, yeah, that's no, totally true. But at the same time, I'm proud of the fact that the person next to me is serving. So, you know, why can't I talk about that? And if I'm in the picture, oh, well, you know, you know, that's a different way of, of is it really wrong to be proud of things that are good, right? Isn't that good stuff? Doesn't God look better in that somehow? We live in the era of this incredibly dangerous and deceptive thing. It is called the humble brag. And the humble brag is so terrible and impossible to like even see most of the time because it has so woven itself into the fabric of everything that we don't even know that it's happening. The humble brag, this is an example, this is a cartoon I found with an example. It's, a, it's an astronaut and he's walking on the moon, which only a few people ever get to do, and he says, ugh, these moon boots are so hard to walk in, right? Okay, that is an example of a humble brag. That is an example of like, oh man, these boots are hard to walk in. This is tough. Subtext, right? I'm walking on the moon. You're not walking on the moon. You're not walking on the moon. Oh, the problems that I have in my life don't get me started because I'm one of the people who, you know, gets to walk on the moon, right? You see all this stuff in social media. I fell down the rabbit hole of this, and it was not good. But basically, there's entire Twitter accounts that are devoted to, like, seeing this stuff when it happens online and then just kind of reposting these things. You don't put any commentary on it whatsoever. You just let it speak for itself, right? And this is, like, real. This is the way that we do this. This is one person's post. This is a girl. I'm wearing a ponytail, rolled out of bed from a nap, at the bar with my guy, and guys are still hitting on me. Like, really? Okay, that is a humble brag, okay? You might have to study it for a second to see it, right? But like, oh my gosh, oh God, can people, people please stop hitting on me? This is the worst, right? Like, oh man, right? This is a good one. This is totally real. I mean, I really have no way of knowing that, but I think it's real because I've actually, I'll say this, I've seen this before, okay? Here it is. I just did something very selfless, but more importantly, it was genuine, and I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. And then a hashtag, so worth it, right? 
right? I am proud that, 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 that good things are done by people. So when I do one of those things, I want the world to see the positive being done, right? Is there anything wrong with really being proud of these things? Um, we, we live in a culture where, honestly, the idea of trying to live your life in a way that doesn't boast is so difficult. Um, how, how, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think we've been guilty of this. I know a lot of families that have. Like, I mean, how many people have gone and gotten family photos and then you like, post them online and, and, and you say, like, ugh, family photos, these were the worst or something like that, right? Like, we all did terrible that day, and it's like the most amazing photo you've ever seen. And you're like, well, I didn't even get them this year because, you know, we couldn't all be that close to each other without killing each other, so we skipped this year, right? It is so hard for us to not, uh, out of a constant inadequacy, I mean, a constant pressure to actually look in our own lives and say, is there, is there, what, what here in my life can I just feel good about, right? What in my life do I get to be happy about and get to be proud of and get to, get to at least stand on and say that part of it is good, right? I'm going to grab onto whatever I can. I'm going to proclaim it wherever I can. The fact is, uh, I'm not a super great, amazing, all-loved person that's just getting this all the time. I, I very rarely get uh, this sense that things are going well for me, maybe. And so I'm going to proclaim it whenever I can. I'm, I want people to know the things that I'm proud of. Right? I want people to know the things I'm proud of that my kids do and that my friends do, that my church does or whatever. Uh, and when Paul says, do not boast... What he's saying is he's saying that that thing inside of us, that constant like sort of uh, hunger to get some kind of recognition for the things in life that we are happy about. He said that hunger will never be satisfied. You'll constantly need to boast more and more and more. You'll need the opinions of others, the, the affirmations of others, the, the love of others, the encouragement of others. It will drive you to do worse and worse things and to be focused more and more, not on what's actually happening in your life, but how it appears, the things are happening in your life. You see, the way of love for a Christian is to actually say, what can I do to take responsibility for the temptations that my brother is falling into, that my sister is falling into? This is an un, uh, unknown concept in the world. Outside of scripture, this is not something that you see when you talk about how to love each other. It's this idea of, I really love you, not just by trying to be my best version of myself, a.k.a., oh, yeah, I'm going to not be envious, right? I'm going to be a patient, kind, uh, fully satisfied person. It's not just about me trying as hard as I can to, to do this. It's also this crazy revolutionary kind of love is one that says, I'm also going to go, what can I do to help you not fall into the pit that you're tempted to fall into? What can I do to help you be less envious? What can I do to help you be more patient? What can I do in my kindness towards you, uh, knowing that things I say, things I do, probably will hurt you if I'm not careful? 
What if I focus less on this idea of being obsessed with what I objectively am doing that's right and wrong, and I focused more on how I'm helping you, my brother or sister, in being a loving person? For some of us, I think the message in this very simple command of Paul, which is this reminder that, that love is patient, or I'm sorry, that, that, that love does not envy and love does not boast. For, for some of us, all, all, what this really uh, says to us today, where it really grabs us is, is with that question of, do you understand just how um, insidious and how invasive envy really is? Uh, have you so accepted it and its like ability to grip onto you in your life that you've lost sight of how much it can grow and how destructive it can really be? Do you not recognize that, that we can't really love other people when we desire the things that they have, when we desire what they have and, uh, and that it actually does lead to strife? that a, a group of people, it's kind of this idea of like a, like a room full of smiling people who beneath the surface are like anything but happy, you know? That's kind of the idea that you get, the concept of like just a room full of people who want what this other person has, you know? For some of us, the, we, we just need to hear and be reminded of the fact that, like I said, envy leads to this kind of strife, but, but for others, we need to be reminded of the fact and I, and I wonder if this is actually going to be the part of our, of our time walking through 1 Corinthians 13, if this is going to be the part that challenges us as a church the most and, and as people the most, um, is we have to ask that question of what does it look like for me to take more responsibility for you being better at loving, right? For, for what, is it to, what does it look like for me to take maybe more responsibility for the envy that other people might feel when they look at me? to take more responsibility for the way that the things I do, the decisions I make, the way that I show myself, if I do those things in such a way, am I causing my brother to stumble, right? I mean, the way that Paul talks about things like dietary laws, right? Now, obviously, we're getting off the rails into some pretty exciting stuff, I know. The way that Paul talks about dietary laws, it's almost like he doesn't even care about what the law really is supposed to be. And that's not the case. It's not that Paul doesn't care about what's right or what's wrong. It's that Paul is looking at a group of people saying, listen, just see what they care so much about and try to respect it. And they should see what you care so much about and they should try to respect that thing. You should be sensitive to one another. And the fact that you grew up in these different cultures and you have these different things that matter and you look at them and go, that shouldn't matter so much to you. And they look at you and they go, well, that should matter way more to you. But if you can just look at one another and if you can say, I'm sorry, we have kids running through, totally out of control. No, I can say that because it was my own son. Um, if we can actually see that um, that to love one another means to care less about being objectively right and wrong all the time and, cares, and, and seems as much to be a, a matter and a question of asking the question, how can I help you? How can I help you, my brother or sister? How can I help you, my spouse? How can I help you, my kids? How can, how can we as a family uh, be uh, rather than uh, maybe maybe be a family that, that gets caught up in the in, in the fad of sort of proclaiming um, ourselves, proclaiming each other and the great things that we do 
um, sort of uh, under this disguise of, of, of a good kind of healthy pride and just say, um, what does it look like for us to, to not potentially do something that's going to cause other people to stumble? I think if we can do that, then we, we will really be people who love each other. Last thing I'll say is, um, so lately, needless to say, lately, Ellie and I have been um, spending a lot of time with our kids, and um, our kids have been spending a lot of time with each other. And I'm starting to get the sense that my kids don't like, don't love each other as much as they should all the time. And like, I get that sense that, you know, when you're older, you might regret, you know, some of these things that you're doing and saying. And my kids like to drive each other crazy. They like to get under each other's skin. And sometimes we don't see it happening. Like you don't, they're, they're really good at like, like, like one of them will be really good at getting the other one mad and you won't like see it. You'll just see the other one get mad and you'll be like, stop it. And they're like, yes, I did it, right? I'm like I did it, I got him in, right? But then there's like the really obvious ones, right? There's nothing more obvious than, the, than, than this. One of my kids will honestly just walk by the other kid and they will stick their butt out. Like that's all they will do. They will walk out and they'll just be like, uh, 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 what are you gonna do, you know? And it's basically an invitation, like you're gonna kick me, you're gonna hit me, you're gonna bite me, that's happened before, right? What are you gonna do, right? Uh, because you're gonna do, come on, the temptation, there it is, right? And then something happens and then boom, they're busted, right? Like. Like, this is something that happens in my house. It's, it's, it's not something I'm proud of, but obviously I'll talk about it publicly, so I'm that proud. <laughs> like, like we, we, we kind of go like, oh my gosh, right? Like, this is the most immature thing in the world, right? Uh, and yet I think that there are ways in which each and every one of us, like, in, uh, I don't know that we enjoy, but we're, we're more than willing to point out the ways that other people are doing things that are wrong, ways that they're not being loving, ways that they are harder people to love in this community of ours, without maybe stopping and asking ourselves a question like, what is it that I might be doing that might be contributing to this thing? If we can do that, I think we would truly, like, move past the biggest hurdle, one of the biggest hurdles in the way of people loving each other, and I think that it's something we can do if we can be content. Okay, let's pray. Um, Father, you know, as we worship you and as we sing, we, we do so because we know that there is no way to truly be content. We, we, we know that it actually makes perfect sense that this world in which we live, where most people do not truly know you the way that they ought to, it makes perfect sense that those people would, would experience an emptiness that would cause them to want to find their value and their worth in anything they can, Lord. And that means bragging. That means pride. That means wanting others in the world to recognize them, to find their value in that, Lord. It's no surprise that we live in a world filled with that. It is no surprise that we experience it ourselves, Lord. But the truth is, as your children, you are everything that we need and more. We can be fully and completely content in you and not need anything else, God. We can be fully and completely content in you and not need anyone to see the things in our lives that we love and that we appreciate. Father, we know that that's true and yet somehow it doesn't feel true for so many of us. God, as we as we praise you, as we sing to you, as we, as we think about these words, as we set our eyes, we allow you to be our very vision, God. Would you remind us of, of, of this 
being the goal, Lord, that you would be the thing that we fix our gaze on and that all else would fall into place, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.